Mark 1, verses 29 to 39 for the sermon today. I'm going to read this. It should magically be appearing on the screen behind me, um, and then we will dive into this text. All right, starting in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. When they had found him, they explained, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Grateful for an opportunity to have it read over us. Grateful for an opportunity to sit under its authority. Grateful for the fact that we come to the scripture to learn about you. Not to bring our ideas of you and squeeze them in there. Father, when we have wrong thinking or wrong living, through the Holy Spirit, convict us. Correct us. And give us courage to follow you. Father, I pray for our church. I pray for the, the vision of Redeemer. This would be a place where people can grow in discipleship. We pray for those who are limping along right now. Father, may they be their needs, whether it's physical or spiritual. May they be known by someone in our community. And may we as a church bear with Courage and love one another well. Father, we pray for those who are hurting in our city. We pray that your kingdom would come in Atlanta as it is in heaven. And may you give us opportunities to be the hands and feet of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. When you are walking somewhere and someone takes out their earbuds, and puts them in, what are they communicating to you? Don't talk to me. I'm off limits right now. I've got things to do, and that's the priority. When I put my AirPods in, or earbuds, whatever you want to talk, whatever you want to call them, what I am communicating to the world is that I'm locked in to something. 
I'm locked in, whether it is a podcast, or it is music, or it is a phone call, and whatever it is has, you know, as much as I ever give it, my full attention, and consequently, anything or anyone else around me is left lacking that full attention. For example, if I sit down next to someone on a martyr train or in an airplane, and I am don't have my AirPods in and am excited, I'm like, oh, it's a new person. I am that kind of unique person who is very excited to talk to people in planes or on the martyr train. And then they sit down and they instantly pop in their earbuds. They've communicated something to me. Sometimes I get that communication. Sometimes I plow right on through it. But they're communicating that they're not here for the conversation with me. And AirPods, earbuds are not some sort of evil thing. There are many times and it makes total sense. There's no shame at all if you're on the train or in an airplane and put them in. I know no shame at all in that. But so often when we look back at our lives or our week, whether we physically had our earbuds in or not, so often we live what I would call as an AirPod heavy life. Meaning that it is fair to say that there's sometimes, some days, some weeks even, that we may not be physically having those earbuds in. But metaphorically, we can have a tendency to shut ourselves off from the world around us. Only taking our earbuds in at a time when we're ready to enter into something that we want to do. An event we truly desire to engage with. We're going to see a few things from this story from Mark 1, but the first thing I want us to understand, to learn from this passage, is that the disciples did not lead an AirPod-heavy life. First off, it was 80, you know, 32-ish, so Steve Jobs hadn't exactly done his thing with Apple, so it wasn't entirely physically an option. But even more than that, as we see from this passage, James and John had eyes to see the people, the needs of the people right in front of them. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. So what does this mean for us? As observers of this story, it means that we have a calling an opportunity, an invitation, both individually and as a church, which I'll touch on in a second, to see the needs of the people around us. To take the AirPods out, to observe what's going on, and recognize that there are hurts and wounds and needs all around us. And this is one of the beautiful things about where we are in the church calendar. As Rachel explained so beautifully, we're heading into the Lent season. We have Ash Wednesday on February 14th, and we enter, enter into the Lenten season, which, you know, culminates on Easter Sunday. But Lent is an opportunity for us. We're going to invite you, and Leon's uh, paper that he wrote, uh, his uh, content that he will put out next week explains this beautifully. But it's an opportunity for us to be invited to fast during this season. 
We take a look, an honest look at the ways we've overindulged or the tendencies we have to overindulge, even in the good things of life, when we say we're going to put that on hold or say no to those things for a season of life. And we do this, yes, for our own sanctification, for our own holiness, for our own uh, the process of being made more like Christ to say no to kind of our indulgences and say yes to the things we indulge in and say yes to the good things of following Jesus and reading the scripture and praying more. But I also want you to see that Lent is an opportunity for us to say no to some things so we can see other people more. It's like walking through life with our AirPods out and being willing to hear and see and feel the world around us. But I want you to understand that just wanting to help people is not enough. It takes work to actually see and understand needs. Does anyone recognize the shirt that's up on that screen right there? Any Office fans in the room? So one of my favorite episodes ever is that there's a fun run that happens, and we'll read it all out here. I'll read it to you. Michael Scott's Dunder Mifflin, Scranton Mayor's Hall Memorial, Celebrity Rabies Awareness Pro-Am, Fun Run Race for the Cure. And the beauty of this episode is, as, as Michael Scott, the, the leader of this of the office crew, uh, the boss of, of, the, of the workers at the office at Dunder Mifflin in Scranton, as he rallies the troops to do this fun run, the irony and the humor is that he is trying to raise money to cure a disease that has been what? Already cured. Like rabies is not something that we're still in the lab trying to figure out how, what is going on with this and what do we do about it. But sometimes when we think about our own work in the world, whether it's Big C as a church or as individuals, we oftentimes will say, this is what I want to do to help other people. But we skip over the step of doing the hard work to understand even what people need. There's an assessment that goes on. If you're a doctor or a nurse, and someone comes into the office, there is a, a, an opportunity, a part of that process, where they, you will ask questions. How do you feel? You go to the dentist. Are any of your teeth hurting? How do your gums feel? There is some investigation work done by healthcare professionals so that when they assess what's wrong, they can, give, they can provide to actually meet those needs. So I want to invite us, when we ask ourselves who is hurting around us, we need to ask ourselves what exactly are the needs. And then after we assess, kind of seeing here, what is, who is hurting and how are they hurting, church, we're called to do two beautiful things. The first thing we see this when James and John uh, brought Jesus to Simon's mother-in-law, the first thing that we always do is that we pray for Jesus to heal. This can be someone who is hurting, whether you know they're going through a difficult time financially, or they need a job, or a relationship that is shattered. We are called to be the hands and feet of Christ to those people, but our first response, the most powerful thing we can do, 
is bringing those people to Jesus in prayer. And then as we are able, we lean into being the hands and feet of Christ. Today, people are still sick. And in just in the passage, we see that demons are being uh, led out of people by Jesus. And those are still real. And we want to pray for God's healing across all sorts of illnesses. But we're also recognizing that in our circles, in our context, there are current issues that we are called to be responsive towards. You all really, we all, are invited to do this on a micro level. And so there's homework from church today. There's homework for you all to assess and look around, whether it's in your neighborhood or at your work or in your family or with your children or it's on your street or even in our city. What are the ways that God is opening your eyes to the hurts and the needs of the people around you? And we're all responsible for this. It's all a calling for us to be like the disciples and say, oh, that woman needs healing. How do I move towards her? But I also want you to understand that we as a church are invited to do this on a macro level. As your rector, this is something that I and the rest of the staff give a lot of thought to. What are the needs of the people, and how do we as a church respond to those needs? And I first of all want to say that in our context, in our church context, there are significant financial and benevolent needs in our church community as well as the communities surrounding our church. And we love to be, love to have the opportunity as a church to be the hands and feet of Christ. We're working through the 2024 budget right now, and looking back at 2023, I can tell you without a doubt in my mind that every legitimate financial need that came across the desk of the staff or the leadership, every single one, the finance team found money to cover. I'll jokingly say, like, if because sometimes we get halfway through the budget year and somebody has a great idea, and we come to the finance team and how that works. The budget's already set. We have a new great idea, and we're like, hey, we need special approval for this. Sometimes those get approved. Sometimes they don't. If you have a special benevolent need, we jokingly say it's a green light every single time. And I joke about that, but the reality is that the people at this church, you as individuals, your heart is to care for people. The leadership's heart is to care for people. And we do this, we don't, and even when we don't have the expertise, when there's folks that come in the walls of our church, or even neighbors as well, who have a, a need, even if we don't have the expertise to meet it, there's so many connections that happen within, within the people of our church that we can send them to folks that will help to meet that need. But what the Lord has laid on my heart for this morning is another need. A need that deeply impacts those experiencing great wealth as well as those experiencing great financial need. Friends, what I see, speaking as your rector this morning, what I see both from the research and from our observations 
is a deep need to help people get connected to others in community. Amen? Some psychologists are now calling this the loneliness epidemic, and this is about to get very stats-heavy, so I apologize for you, but I wanted to give some research, some stats and some research to help us all understand that this is written, this is from an article written in October, and it's a survey that found that across, it's taken across 142 countries, representing 77% of the globe. The survey found that 24% of people aged 15 and older self-reported feeling very lonely or fairly lonely in response to the simple question, how lonely do you feel? And to be clear on what I'm talking about, I'll I'll quote the U.S. surgeon, General Dr. Vivek Murthy, when he defines this as loneliness occurs when the connections a person needs in life are greater than the connections they have. So when I look out and I see see so many of you nodding in, in confirmation as well, when I look out and see this problem, loneliness, being that a person is wired for connection yet lacks that in our world today, I look at us in the mirror as a church and say, this is part of our job to meet needs. And historically, there's been a connection between the older you get, the lonelier you become. And some of this kind of makes sense. When you get into your 80s or so, you become less mobile. Sometimes you're not able to drive. Your friends are beginning to pass away. Your, your community shrinks as you get older. But I want you to hear that the data is now showing that the biggest spikes in loneliness are occurring in our younger people. A Harvard study from a couple years ago found that 61% of adults from age 18 to 25 reported feeling serious loneliness compared to 39% across the general population. And I found this next part shocking that Those who live, a quote from that article, those who live in big cities are the most likely to report a lot of loneliness the prior day. Significantly higher than those in rural areas. Friends, we need to understand that though we may feel connected to each other, and I think some of the loneliness is even in this room, but even if you feel connected, the people you are interacting with, a significant portion of them every single day, is walking through life feeling incredibly alone. And the factors of this make sense looking back on it. The COVID restrictions reoriented a lot of how we did life. And the impact of those restrictions are still felt today. Social media. We are connected to more people than ever before. My best friend growing up was a a kid named Evan Myers, who's 40 now, I'm sure you're the same age, he's not really a kid anymore. I spent every day from probably fourth grade to eighth grade running back and forth between our backyard and the Myers backyard. His phone number was 623-3333. It was like free Atlanta, all of you guys coming to Atlanta, we didn't have to use area codes back then, I just had one area code. We had to type it in or into the phone. It was just 623-3333. I have not seen Evan since 1998. However, I know everything about his life. 
I know how many kids he has. I know where he works. I know he grew a ponytail four years ago. I questioned that ponytail. He kept the ponytail. I know all these aspects of his life. And in some ways, I feel connected to him. But I haven't had a conversation with this man in 25 years. That's an extreme example. But for all of us in this room who have engaged in social media, there is not, it's not all evil or all bad. But so often we think that we're feeling connected to other people, but in actuality, it serves the opposite purpose. A study in 2023 by the National Library of Medicine concluded that the more time spent on social media is actually associated with more loneliness. And on top of that, I don't have to tell you heading into a election year that our political divisiveness has not helped this either. We, we section off into people that think like us and those circles over time get smaller and smaller and smaller. In the last eight years, our ability to have a simple conversation about politics that begins or at any point in the conversation includes the line, I would love to understand how you came to that thought. That is like speaking another language. We don't even know how to do that anymore. So therefore, you are believing this or voting this way or thinking this way about an issue, and my gut reaction is just to move away if I disagree. And the epidemic of loneliness continues to pick up steam because of that. So this is a serious issue leading to mental health issues, but I'm telling you it's not just mental health. Doctors are saying a 2015 study, so this is you know eight or nine years ago now, but the study showed that chronic social isolation increased the mortality rate by 30%. And this is no knock on smoking, if that's a habit for you, but the research said that's the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And when we read the Bible, this all checks out. Leon's study, leading us through a study in Revelation, and a lot of Revelation can come back to Genesis. And in Genesis... When we read the story of Adam and Eve, the most fascinating part, I think, about that entire story is that before sin entered the world, before sin stained anything about the world, God said to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. There's a quote by Tim Keller that says, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect. Adam was lonely because he was perfect. And this next part's difficult to get your head around. The Trinity was relationally complete. God did not make Adam just as a qualifier because he needed Adam. But he made it out of the overflow of a perfect relationship in the Trinity. But Adam was lonely because he was like God, relational like God. And therefore, since he was like God, Adam had to have someone to love, to work with, to talk to, to share with. All of our problems, our anger, our anxiety, our fear, our cowardice, all of those arise out of sin and our own imperfections. 
But loneliness is the one problem you have because you're made in the image of God. And to bring this conversation about needs that we see full circle, the beauty of this is that the deeper we are involved relationally as a church community and with our neighbors, the better we meet physical needs. I remember years ago, a guy was walking through the neighborhood with a guy, and he, uh, <laughs> he had just read some study. We were walking down a street that had a bunch of abandoned houses, and he said, you know what would solve this? If we just fixed all the broken windows. And I remember thinking, I don't know how to tell you this, but the problems of our city are a touch more complex than like a baseball that went through that window a few weeks ago. The like history of systemic injustice in our city may have played a role in how different housing is around Atlanta. The lack of the struggle in the educational system may have played a role in what these kids are doing after school or on the weekends. But the deeper we are involved relationally, or we step towards people, the more effective we are at meeting financial, physical, benevolent needs. So we're called to see the need, then we're called to meet the needs. James and John saw Simon's mom and did what? They met that need by bringing Jesus to her. So we see the need, we move towards people, and as Psalm 68 tells us, God does something incredibly powerful. God says in Psalm 68, He's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. God sets the lonely into families, leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Brothers and sisters, your job, your response to this passage is to simply invite people into community. And I'm telling you, as true as I've said anything else today, that at Redeemer we are uniquely positioned to do this incredibly well. The Lord has blessed us with a beautiful, diverse church full of some of the most welcoming people I have ever met in my life. Therefore, I promise you, if you know people in your life that God is placing on your heart to say, I want to move towards that person, if you invite them in to this community, they will be loved well. And we are rolling out opportunities for you to do so because we see this as a need and we see this as a calling from our church. And that is, you know, getting competitive over a game of whatever that train game is you guys like. What's that one called? Yes, Ticket to Ride, uh, whether it's that or it's uh, whatever other game. I'm not a great game guy, a bogus. Uh, <laughs> whatever it is, inviting people. Like if they show up at the Hell's house, they will be loved. If they are coming to a Shrove Tuesday potluck at your house, it's an opportunity to say, we love, we value, we see you, we value you, we want to be in a relationship with you. Even if it's uncomfortable, people are open more than ever 
through liturgical rhythms, even non-Christians or people who are dipping their toes, exploring Christianity, even Ash Wednesday, which feels incredibly intimidating. We're going to literally put ashes on your forehead if you'd like to walk forward to receive them. But it's an opportunity to invite people in. And so this is not just, again, for people outside of the walls of the church, but it's an invitation for you all to do this with each other as well. And you do this so well. Married couples, you do a good job of inviting single people into your life. Our kids are older now, but I remember when our kids were, you know, two, four, six, and eight, and, you know, high chairs and peas being thrown on the ground and tantrums, you know, over who knows what, and inviting people in and being nervous. Are they going to judge me because I, you know, don't have all my parenting together? Is this going to turn into a mess? Are they going to get mush carrots thrown at their face at some point in this dinner? And the answer is yes, they probably will. But the beauty of that is that our folks that are not in that stage of life, they love to be welcomed into that. And single people accept the invitations. And extend invitations to one another. Share your lives. Lean in to community. And the last part about this passage that we see is the primacy of the gospel and the call to give them the gospel. Jesus met physical and relational needs left and right throughout his ministry. But the the scripture clearly says, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also. This is why I have come. We can't give people community without giving them Jesus. We can't meet physical needs without preaching the gospel. It's an invitation. This is Jesus saying, all of this stuff is good. The best thing I'm doing. And this may make some of you uncomfortable, but he's literally saying, this is the primary reason I am here is to go preach the word. And though you may not stand behind the pulpit, if you're interested, we'd love to get you in the preaching cohort, but though you may not stand here and preach on a Sunday morning, every one of you has an invitation to preach the gospel to the people around you. And it's also another opportunity, if that's overwhelming, or even if it's not overwhelming, to invite them here. To hear the good news that Jesus is real, that he loves them, and offers them and us grace and forgiveness through the cross. And the last thing I'll say here is that God is not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done for us. Richard, you can come on up. Whether as a parent, a friend, a teacher, or a co-worker, at some point in your life, God saw the needs that you had, relational, financial, spiritual. He came towards you. Through people, he met those needs, and he gave you Jesus. And as the scripture tells us, let us go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for the invitation that we have that you, in your wisdom, saw fit to not just live this 
life 2,000 years ago. Not just give us stories to read, but you saw fit as a part of your kingdom coming that we get to play a role in it. Father, give us eyes to see the needs of the world around us. Give us ears to hear and give us the courage to walk forward in love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.